Bills and Belly. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 455. It is me and Jason today, and we're going to be covering the destruction of the food supply, um, which has been going on longer than I've been alive, actually. And in the description, I make some kind of ancillary references to go back a couple decades before I was born to show when things like aluminum are being introduced into the food supply. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a very not warm and pleasant good morning. I'm telling you, man, two days ago, I was on the beach in my shorts wearing flip-flops. It was 77 and beautiful, and we're in the low 40s now. So go figure. Anyhow, let's jump in and do this. Anything you want to add before we get in? How about you are what you eat? That's what we're taught, right? Well, I mean, how can anyone say that that's not true? You know, before we get in, that's a good point. You absolutely are what you eat. And you notice so many people when they get older that are unhealthy, that have eaten processed foods their whole life, uh, never eat anything grown, a vegetable or a fruit. And what's more is I used to, I had gotten to a point where I had bought into, oh, vitamins and supplements, you just pee them out. You're making expensive pee. Uh, And I've come to learn otherwise with people like Clive who have given me quality supplements and they've made a huge difference. As a matter of fact, a day doesn't go by when I'm not supplementing whatever foods I choose to eat. But that's an important issue, though I don't think we'll touch on it too much here, maybe a little. All right, so let's start with what is food processing? And that is any of a variety of operations by which raw foodstuffs are made suitable for consumption, cooking, or storage. Food processing generally includes the basic preparation of foods, the changing of a food product into a different form, and preservation and packaging techniques. So let's just make the obvious point here. What is food processing? It's all about making a food suitable for, wait for it, consumption, cooking, and storage. At no part of this mainstream definition is there anything about healthy food, nutritious food. (laughs) You know, you see where I'm going here. They just got to make it so you can eat it, you can cook it, and you can store it for extended periods of time. My point is, by the very definition of processed food, there is zero concern in the stated reason for processing food that it is nutritious in any way. So food processing is not necessarily a bad thing as we're about to get into. But in the modern context, it's not very good. You know, it was years ago, Jason, where I began to wake up to that this place called the grocery store I've been getting all my food from for most of my life is not what I once thought it was. Started doing things like going down the aisle and reading every label. And very quickly, what we always used to buy became what we no longer buy. And very quickly, you start to zero in on there is this corn syrup as an example, and almost everything. You're looking at ham slices to make sandwiches. I'm not buying these anymore. Read read the ingredients. Um, Sodium nitrates and um, sugar and just everything, everything in the last places you'd expect to see it. And what's funny about this is, and I made this reference in the opening sentence of uh, the description for this episode. When I was young, I don't know, nine, 10, something like that, I saw the movie, Oh God, with George Burns and John Denver. And I always remembered as a young mind when they were in the grocery store and God, George Burns 
points over at the kids' cereals and said, we're turning our kids into garbage cans, chemicals, chemicals, chemicals. And as a young person, I'm thinking, what's he talking about? What's wrong with the cereal? But that's like, what, early 70s? That's going on already? Anyhow, let's keep moving. Processing of food will almost certainly decrease its nutritional density. The amount of nutrients lost depends on the food and the processing method that is employed. Heat destroys vitamin C for one example. Therefore, canned fruits will possess less vitamin C than their fresh alternatives. The USDA conducted a study of nutrient retention in 2004, creating a table of foods, levels of preparation, and nutrition. New research highlighting the importance to human health of a rich microbial environment in the intestine indicates that abundant food processing, not fermentation of foods, by the way, endangers that environment. Using certain food additives represents another safety concern. The health risks of any given additive can vary greatly from person to person. One huge example is using sugar as an additive, which can endanger diabetics and really isn't good for anyone. Another common additive that can have far-reaching health concerns is sodium that normally comes in the form of salt. Salt is added to prevent spoilage, add flavor, and enhance the texture of processed foods. Some processed food may contain over 2% salt. Americans are said to consume an average of 3,436 milligrams of sodium per day, which is higher than the recommended limit of 2,300 milligrams per day for healthy people and more than twice the limit of 1,500 milligrams per day for those at increased risk for heart disease. And lastly, but certainly nowhere near all of the additives in processed foods, numerous preservatives of varying sorts are used to give these foods as long of a shelf life as possible and who knows how much damage these chemicals do to a body, especially over time. So this reminds me of an old, I guess it's an urban legend. Um, it was around a long time ago, and it had to do with the Vietnam War. And I'm not saying this is true. It was an urban legend that was going around as people were starting to wake up to the fact that the preservatives and other things in foods were not a good deal. It would be interesting to know. Someone knows or can look up whether there's any validity to what I'm about to say in this urban legend, it would be interesting to know. The claim used to be that when the soldiers fought in Vietnam and an uh, American soldier got killed, it took much longer for the body to decompose than the other side, which were not eating westernized processed foods. But to get back to the point, when we start to look at what they're putting in foods, it's not just that it's too much of everything, but Things like sugar, how you get your sugar, how you get your salt. Um, I never eat table salt. As a matter of fact, I can't even eat something like Campbell's soup anymore because if I do, it burns my throat because of the salt level, because I'm no longer used to that. What I do use is the Himalayan salts, the sea salts. Um, David Avocado Wolf has fantastic salt that my wife and I just love. That's what we use. And by the way, you use a lot less of it if you cook with it properly, but when we're talking about salt, I mean, it's pretty much the regular processed kind of Morton salt in a lot of these foods or something worse. At the end of the day, the main takeaway on this bullet point for me is what Gerson showed us was important. 
Gerson showed us that we could take food grown in nature where there is no lie, juice them carefully by pressing them, not macerating them too much, not heating them too much. And the life force that was grown into that living plant was then ingested by you and served an important part to go on to curing you. And this is a big deal because I'm guessing most of the people listening, if you sat down right now and said, how much of the food that I eat is actually alive? I would be willing to bet the majority of you, 90% of it is dead, maybe even more. The conscientious person that squeezes their own juices and things like that, eats fermented foods, things like that, you're actually getting life force. That's why the fermenting fairies products are so important. But this is another thing that the processing of food uh, declared war on to remove the life force of anything. This is done through heating, freezing, um, pasteurization. There's a couple other ways, steaming. Um, basically heat is, is one of the main ways. And what it does is it takes the life force and it kills it. And so I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as we go through here. Salt's a big deal, by the way. If you eat like McDonald's for uh, any extended period of time, the extra amount of sodium you're getting in your diet is just holy cow. That that dude did that. What's that Spurlock? Was yeah, that, that was great. That's that's getting on a little bit now. It's like over ten years old now, but it was really good. It was called Super Size Me. Thirty. What was it? It was thirty days. This is what the guy did. Who, if you haven't seen the show, and he filmed it. So there's no. I mean, it, anything can be skewed a little bit, but he's pretty much filming what's going on, including his doctor's visit. So there's got to be some validity to it. I would estimate goes thirty days. Every meal is McDonald's. If he pulls up to the drive-thru and they do their marketing, can I supersize you? He has to say yes, which he does regularly. At the end of the 30 days, he goes into the doctor. What was it, Jace? Was it his liver? I forget. His body was basically shutting down. He'd gained, I don't remember how much weight. It was probably like 15 pounds or something like that, but I could be wrong. I haven't seen it in ages. But the big takeaway from it was his body was literally dying. They told him, you are dying. And this is from eating McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and he had to finish it or do his best to finish it because there were times he was starting to throw up. So, I mean, in what world is it even okay to call what's coming out of that place food? Um, food shouldn't be a thing that kills you, I would estimate. This guy did this for 30 days. And by the way, think of all the low-income places. Well, it's not so not so cheap anymore to eat at fast food places that once was. It once was you could spend a buck or two and get a full meal. But to do that regularly, man, that is hard on your health. Well, and to be uh, really honest about it all, if we jumped in the DeLorean and went back to 1955 and he ate McDonald's for uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I don't think they had breakfast back then, but whatever, it would be a very different meal that he would be indulging in than... <laughs> God knows what the hell is in that stuff nowadays. Well, you it was either you or Rose that sent me a thing that said, what's the difference between McDonald's French fries in America and McDonald's French fries no, that in, was me. <laughs> in Britain? And I said, what is it? And you said, there's potatoes in the British French fry. Yeah, potatoes. <laughs> and, and this is other countries as well. And I think it was the UK one, if I remember correctly, that, that I'd seen the article on. And it was literally... Potatoes fried with salt, I think, maybe one other thing. But yeah, that's what a French fry is, or a chip as they would call it. But not in America. In the United States, oh my 
God, it was just like this long list of chemicals. And it's like, what the hell is the point of that? Like, why would you well, need to do that? Yeah, let's even get into that for a second. So would it be more cost effective to buy a potato, peel it, cut it, fry it, salt it, or to come up with the list of chemicals and create whatever the hell it is they're creating? The initial effort clearly has to be more, but what's the purpose of that? Why would you ever bother to take a French fry and figure out a way to replace the potato? I'm just saying. Okay, stretching back into prehistory, it is generally assumed that humans were what is called hunter-gatherers. Mainstream history says that this was the way of life for early humans until around mm, 11 to 12,000 years ago. The daily lifestyle of hunter-gatherers was based on hunting animals for meat, fishing, and, of course, foraging for any plant-based food that may be growing in the wild. As a result of this lifestyle, humans would be limited to what was available on a day-to-day basis. Whatever they would be eating would be as fresh as possible. However, once acquired, it would most likely have no sort of shelf life with any uneaten food not being edible within a short amount of time. So there's actually a word for this kind of diet where you're only eating what's due at that time of the year, which seems a strange thing to even be talking about because I'm guessing if we went back simply a hundred years-ish, almost everything that people are eating would be in season. There are actually whole lifestyle diets put together that do that very thing, but it's not just what's available at that time of year. It's available in that time of year, wherever your geography is. But think about what we're talking about here. How could we have gotten to a point where that does that? That's like a strange thing to even be thinking. Um, can I have a tomato? Is it the right you know season for a tomato or corn or any of that? Um, we've come a long way from the truth that's held in nature. And this bullet point, that's what this is all about for me. Nature has certain truths that are indisputable. They are natural laws. No one can break them. And while we see them hacked, you can take chemicals and greenhouses and fool plants into doing things. The law still remains the law in terms of how nature works. But this is what's gone out the window is the the wholesale kind of detachment from what the natural world actually allows. And to me, that's every bit as damaging as the processing and basic demoralizing of food stuff. And the other thing you'll notice quite often, not 100% of the time, but quite often, if you're getting a fruit or a vegetable off-season in the grocery store, very often they suck. I mean, they're just kind of bland. Like, they're not what you would get if you were getting local while something was in season. Jason, I'm in Rhode Island. You cannot get a good orange in the state to save your life, even in the summer. And what I finally realized was the off-season stuff, don't, don't even bother to buy off-season citrus when you're in the, the Northeast. What they do, I think, I'm reasonably sure, is they're picking that stuff green. It's not even ready to be picked. And then they're shipping it. Occasionally, we get a bag of mandarins and they'll be decent. But you got to remember, I grew up in Southern California. I can pull over on any street and grab a good orange at no time. Does the citrus in Rhode Island approach average citrus in San Diego? And by the way, there's one in San Diego. There, I don't think there is a month where you can't get citrus in San Diego. I don't know how much of that is from, you know, hybridization or what they'd call it, but I'm just saying. 
Moving along with mainstream history, about 12,000 years ago is when agricultural practices were said to be first developed, with some human groups moving from hunter-gatherer practices into establishing permanent settlements. This lifestyle would be able to provide for much larger populations, as food could be planted with the idea in mind of having enough for all. Interestingly, though, many hunter-gatherer behaviors persisted until more modern times. As recently as 1500 of the current era, there were still hunter-gatherers in parts of Europe and throughout the Americas. However, over the last 500 years, the population of hunter-gatherers has declined dramatically. Today, there are very few that still exist, with the Hadza people of Tanzania being one of the last groups to live in this tradition. This brings up an episode we did earlier on the Bushman tribes. These are the peoples that were covered in The Gods Must Be Crazy, fascinating culture, uh, amazing culture, and maybe has an argument to being one of the oldest cultures among us. The point I would make is those people now, as far as I have been told and from the interview we did, they outlawed their way of life. They said you can no longer hunt and gather. But here's the thing, and I've thought about this before. Anytime you're going to get any sizable group of people that you might start to call a town or you know a large village of any kind, hunting for meat is going to become a problem unless you're on water. Then the ocean would be better fit to provide enough you know, fish and things. But like, if you're inland, think about it. How long could say a thousand people living in the same place be whacking things in their area and have any wildlife left to catch after a couple of years? Um, I imagine if you're in tune with nature, you might be able to balance it for a while, but it seems to me that no matter what the mainstream says, growing had to take place whenever any large group of people began to settle in one place. The wildlife, I don't think, could have sustained them in most places for very long. Well, I believe the idea was that humans roamed in tribes across whatever lands they were in. Uh, the Native Americans would be a great example of this. Yeah, it'd be interesting to look at because consider if you had a thousand people in a, in what used to be called a tribe, supposedly roaming. Now, if you went to the plains, you know, you're waiting for the buffalo to come. That's not all year round. But how would you feed a thousand people a day meat? I'm guessing they probably didn't eat three squares a day. Actually, you and I know they didn't because Edward Bernays made three squares the thing. Uh, two squares were common before Edward Bernays in this country, which allows me to maybe surmise that one solid meal a day in a situation like we're talking about. But just to feed a thousand people meat every day when they're not on the water, that seems like it would be a challenge. To start breaking down the idea of actual food processing, the first, simplest, and most important step would be cooking. It is said that humans initially started out by simply adding heat to meats, seeds, and vegetables, going back as far as 1.5 million years ago. Simple food preservation methods would follow. Which included drying, fermenting, pickling, smoking, and salting. In some of the earliest civilizations, including Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt, evidence suggests that this was occurring as early as 9600 BC. The invention of writing and recording history helped to advance these early methods, as those who were the first food processors were able to record, pass down. And trade information more easily. Well, of course, this is 
mainstream's idea of what's what, you know, history. And uh, of course, from my point of view, the majority of history is a lie agreed upon. But think about these methods, drying, fermenting, pickling, smoking, salting. Um, I'm aware and I have lived in places where each of these things has gone on. As a matter of fact, there's big Portuguese populations where I am here. In San Diego, it's more Hispanic or Mexican populations. Here, it's Portuguese. And one of their main staples still is a dried fish, dried hard as a board. And they make fantastic. You look at it, you know, with modern American eyes, you're thinking, what are you going to make with that? But they cook delicious food with these dried pieces of fish. And they didn't have to put all kinds of chemicals in it. Fermenting is one of the main big games in town and pickling that we lost. Now, my grandparents' generation, when I used to go to Michigan to visit them and all their friends that were as old as my grandparents, all of them pickled every year. They had a garden out back. They ate what they could. They put in mason's jars and pickled or preserved in one way or another. And in the basement, there was always that extra food because they had come through the Great Depression, which who knows what we're going to see in the years to come. My point being, it was two short generations ago when that living food was still available. What's missing from our diet in the West now is pickled foods, which used to be common, and fermenting, which has life force. Smoking and salting, uh, again, are things that have kind of, you don't, you just don't see it too much anymore. Somehow chemicals have replaced these methods, which were shown to be a much healthier option when preservation of food was called for. These processes are used by humanity for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And this will bring us all the way up to the 19th century. Two processes were invented at this time, pasteurization and canning. You know, we should have done some side research on the canning part of this, because I remember my grandparents talking about when when cans were tin, they were making a claim that the newer cans were problematic for certain reasons. And I don't know if this is true, um, but the pasteurization, what's that about? Look up Louis Pasteur. He's a poser, by the way, Jason. We've covered that Pasteur was a poser who, who uh, I think maybe Fortune mentioned it. I'm guessing Dr. Lena may have mentioned it. But basically what they're doing is they're coming in and saying, you can't have living food. It's unsafe. We need to kill the food. Basically, that's pasteurization in a nutshell, but that's my point of view. The process of pasteurization was developed by and named for the French microbiologist Louis Pasteur, who was researching in the 1860s. The process was particularly important for fruit juices and most especially with milk, since it is extremely susceptible to the growth of bacteria. Pasteurization kills microbes by applying a certain amount of heat which is claimed does not affect the nutritional quality or taste of the food items. Without this process, the history of food processing would not have changed much further. So another side effect of doing a thing like this is it starts to train by proxy our food system to not be delivering fresh anymore, right? Because I just got a gallon of milk and I know it'll be good for two weeks. You know, I heard a weird thing, Jason. I know I was never aware of it. Apparently, I think it's the UK. You can buy milk that's like less pasteurized or something. Like you can buy milk that'll be used in a week and other milk that'll be used in two or something like that. 
I'm sure someone in the comments will know what I'm talking about and can put it up. But just think about the idea of we're not going to pasteurize this milk. We just talked to Owen Benjamin. He's getting fresh milk and cream out of goats and cows and everything else. He's touting the benefits and how much better he feels with it. But here's the difference. That food supply is going to go on regularly each day or every other day. The new fresh stuff's going to come. Now, when the pasteurization comes into the picture, automatically what's going to happen is freshness is going to take a back seat because we just delivered today. We don't need to deliver it again until a week from now or, you know, some days from now. I mean, what do you think? Well, I've had fresh milk quite regularly, and it is extremely noticeably different than anything you would just randomly buy in a supermarket or a gas station, wherever it's coming from. Big, big, big difference. You let it sit around for a day or so, and guess what happens? This lovely cream starts forming on the top. The real cream and a little dollop of that in your coffee is pretty freaking amazing. Well, that's another thing uh, that people that are more worldly and travel around, I hear regularly that all over places in Europe, they still get live milk, they still get live ciders, apples pressed fresh with the life force still in them. And the big one that you always hear about is cheeses. Now, what's interesting, some of the best cheeses apparently are in Switzerland, and that's partially because of where the cows are, those high altitude pastures that have no chemicals, so they claim, um, but they don't pasteurize their stuff. It's still a tradition. For those farms to have a cheese house and they're making it by hand, they're not pasteurizing it. And so why is it okay there, but it's not okay here? To me, it seems like the whole idea of making pasteurization a law or not being able to buy living foods, that seems like an agenda to me. I really think that that's true. It seems just from uh, the McDonald's example we used earlier, that the stuff that they're feeding to the general population is absolute crap. In comparison to what you could get if you actually have some money or more to the point if you're in, say, Europe, where friends I know who have traveled there, they say the food quality is just light years ahead of any of the average stuff that you would get in the United States. So why that is, I don't know. We talked with Athen when he, where was he in Portugal? He got stuck during Covidius minimus in Portugal. And the first thing I said is, how's the food? And he was raving about it. But here's another thing. These fermented foods, imagine a place like Japan, where I've spent time, where everyday staples are fermented food, how much healthier the population must be as a whole in terms of disease, like even soy sauce that goes on just about, that's like Japanese ketchup, maybe. I don't know if that's a very good analogy, but you get what I'm saying. There's soy sauce on every table. It gets used nearly daily. That's a fermented thing. As a matter of fact, UNESCO going around the world you know, saving this place or that place, which I've always been suspicious of why they're doing it. They have these heritage sites and uh, one of the oldest soy sauce factories that makes it the original way is one of those places. Um, the point is, is what's our counterpart in America? We really don't. I mean, can you think of any regularly eaten fermented food in America? Because I really can't. I mean, you might say like coleslaw or something maybe, but it's just not the same. There's got to be one. I just can't think of it. Canning is another process that is still in very common use today. Around 1810, a French chef named Nicolas Appert began experimenting with food preservation using heat, glass bottles, cork, and wax, known as hermetic bottling. 
La Maison Appair, or the House of Appair, became the first food bottling factory in the world. Other inventors, as well as merchants, built on this method to eventually develop the tin can. The tin can would become particularly useful with the start of World War I, where there was a high demand for cheap, long-lasting, transportable food for soldiers. Early tin cans were sealed by soldering with a tin lead alloy, which could lead to lead poisoning. In 1901, in the United States, the American Can Company was founded, and which produced 90% of the United States tin cans at that time. Canned food in tin cans was already quite popular in various countries when technological advancements in the 1920s lowered the cost of the cans even further. In 1935, the first beer in metal cans was sold, which was, of course, a huge success. You know, there's almost like a whole side expedition we could have taken right around this topic. So you're talking 1810, you're barely into the 1800s, and they're doing the hermetic thing, right? So they're basically sealing it so oxygen doesn't get in or out. But what's always got me thinking about tins, and I haven't done the research for it, is tin is um, the beneficent planet uh, Jupiter's metal. And that's usually beneficent things. But if I'm not mistaken, Jason, the cans we get today, they're not tin, most of them. And I had no idea that they were using lead to solder them shut before I saw this, which is interesting to me because in France, they take their food freaking serious. And I was going to say, I'll bet you the, the canning or the bottling and things going on was done at a much higher level, acceptable level, because French people, food's a big deal. They're world renowned for how big a deal their food is. But there it is. We should have looked into what the cans are currently made out of because I don't think they're tin anymore. No, they haven't been for a long time. They're aluminum and aluminum steel alloys. Well, there it is. If, if aluminum plays a big role, then we also see another contributing factor from my point of view with the experience I gained from my mother's death, uh, why dementia is so high. You know, I, I don't see a lot of people eating canned foods like they once did, though. Canned foods were a big deal in the 60s. Oh, and also in some places, a plastic lining is sprayed around the inside of the can to help keep the seal in and to keep the foods supposedly fresher. So that's problematic in and of itself. And I'd forgotten about that. I do know that for a long time, when you open the can, you could see it was like a white or a grayish lining that looked plastic. But remember what Clive said, Clive worked in the plastics industry. And he told us that what they're doing is they're making the plastic into a bottle, then filling it before it has time to cure. So I'm guessing if you're making tin cans and you're spraying plastics on the inside, if you're not letting them cure, uh, there may be a similar problem there. Cornflakes are a breakfast cereal made from toasting flakes of corn. The cereal was originally made with wheat and was created by Will Kellogg in 1894, for patients at the Battle Creek Sanitarium, where he worked with his brother, John Kellogg, who was the superintendent. The breakfast cereal proved popular among the patients, and Kellogg would begin what would subsequently become the Kellogg Company to produce cornflakes for the general public. A patent for the making of cornflakes was granted in 1896, after a legal battle between the two brothers. With cornflakes becoming popular in a much wider consumer base, a previous patient at the sanitarium, C.W. Post, started to make rival products. 
Kellogg continued to experiment with various ingredients as well as different grains. In 1928, he started to manufacture another mainstay, Rice Krispies, which would also prove to be a highly successful breakfast cereal. Today, breakfast cereals come in a staggering variety, from little more than processed sugar to actual healthy meals generally made from grains, nuts, and fruits. Do you ever wonder about this? Like if you could somehow magically get a box of cornflakes or Rice Krispies from 1920s and taste it side by side with, with what's there now, the big difference. And what always got me thinking about this was soda. When I was young, and you could, you know, what's funny is people in San Diego purposely get Mexican Coke because it's still used what they call real sugar in a glass bottle. And it's noticeably different. But when I remember of drinking soda when I was young is it was crisp and it had a very sharp edge. And I also wonder what would be if I could get one of those magical old bottles that was fresh and drink it side by side with what we're doing now, because we know that overall the food itself and the production of the food has gone downhill. After all, was any of this GMO in 1894 when they're coming up with cornflakes uh, or the rice for that matter? I'm pretty sure that that all of it would have been much more naturally put together. But there is a movie about Kellogg. I forget what it's called. I think Matthew Broderick's in it. And they paint a pretty dim picture of the man, actually. It's interesting that all this happened in a sanitarium, but I suspect that we equate that word with something different than it was at that time. Well, we're getting way ahead of ourselves because I do cover the soda thing in hour two. But the one thing I can tell you to back up what you just said, about 10, 12 years ago, something like that, I tried something from a store called Pepsi Throwback. And all of a sudden, memories started firing in my brain about, oh, wait a second, this is what it tasted like when I would go to the movie theater with my father in the 1970s. So what is it? It, It's like old school recipes or what's the difference? It's made with the natural cane sugar like it would have been Mm. back then. I remember every weekend my father would take my brother and I to go see a movie and we would always get a soda pop, a Pepsi was what I always got, and popcorn. And I just remember sitting there and it having a certain taste. And I'm not a soda fan anyway. I don't drink it at all now. But occasionally I would like I said, 10, 12 years ago, whatever it was. And I was like, Pepsi throwback is what it was called. I don't know if they still make it because I don't even look at that stuff in the store anymore. But when I tasted it, I mean, literally neurons firing in my brain, memories that I hadn't experienced in a very long time. And I was like, oh my God, this is what I remember. Very, very different. So that reminds me of another thing that I wasn't aware of. I forget what I was doing some years ago. And I saw these Coke bottles with a yellow lid. And I was like, what is that? Well, it turns out that was kosher Coke. And I haven't been able to find it since because I actually wanted to get a bottle of kosher Coke and read the ingredients and taste it just to see the difference. I even went on like Amazon and places looking for it. I couldn't find it. If anyone out there put a comment, if you know anything about this, it's just like a regular Coke bottle, but I'm reasonably sure it's it's a noticeably different color lid. I think it's yellow and it's made, I believe, I'm guessing, for Jewish kosher events where the food's all got to be kosher. If anyone knows anything about it, throw a link in because I would love to look at it. I would love to know what the difference is. If it's anything more than somebody said a prayer on it, which I kind of suspect it is, like, would there be real sugar? What's the difference? Anyhow, I always wanted to know. 
And if the whole soda thing interests you, just tune into hour two because by the time we get up to that point, uh, I'm going to be breaking things down by decades because you'll see how things were added in more and more as time went by. You got to remember, maybe just barely. Do you remember in the 80s when everything that was cool all of a sudden had to be clear? <laughs> like they had, <laughs> they had Pepsi? clear, they had your, your underarm deodorant went clear. Everything had to be clear. Anyhow, we'll save it for hour two. Trans unsaturated fatty acids or trans fat is produced in a chemical reaction of hydrogenation that was first discovered at the end of the 19th century and became more widely used over the following years. Health concerns associated with the consumption of trans fat became evident years later, prompting food manufacturers to reformulate products that contain trans fat. They first began entering the food supply in the 1910s. Some recognizable processed foods that became available as early as the 1910s included Aunt Jemima syrup, Crisco, Hellman's mayonnaise, marshmallow fluff, Nathan's hot dogs, and Oreo cookies. You know, Jason, I didn't realize that the trans fat thing went back that far. It makes you wonder what they were thinking when they were coming up with these things. Do you think it ever crossed their mind? Hey, man, is this healthy? Because the food supply around them at that time was far more healthy than it is now. It's a wonder if anyone even considered whether it was all about marketing and sales or, or uh, like I always wondered, this, did the CEO of the company let his kids eat his product? That would be the tell. Well, if they knew it was bad or good, who knows? But let's not forget, we're talking about a time period where people weren't into massive overindulgence. So you didn't have kids eating an entire row of Oreo cookies while uh, playing Nintendo or whatever it would happen to be at the time. Can you imagine? Because um, they always show all the junk food and like the Red Bull and all the energy drinks that gamers are eating day after day. Can you imagine coming around when these gamers that are like under 20 now or in their 40s? They're going to look like they're in their 60s. By the way, now that it's in the notes, isn't there something unusual about the name of how Oreo got its name? I can't remember. Maybe I'll look it up as you're going. Monosodium glutamate or MSG, also known as sodium glutamate, is the sodium salt of glutamic acid. MSG is found naturally in some foods, including tomatoes and cheese, in this glutamic acid form. MSG is used in cooking as a flavor enhancer with what is called an umami taste. It intensifies the meaty, savory flavor of food, as naturally occurring glutamate does in foods such as stews and meat soups. MSG was first prepared in 1908 by Japanese biochemist Kikunu Akida, who was trying to isolate and duplicate the savory taste of kombu, an edible seaweed used as a base for many Japanese soups. MSG is said to balance, blend, and round the perception of other tastes. MSG is commonly found added to stock or bullion cubes, soups, ramen, gravy, stews, condiments, savory snacks, etc. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has given MSG its generally recognized as safe or GRAS designation. It is a popular belief that MSG can cause headaches and other feelings of discomfort, which has commonly been called Chinese restaurant syndrome. 
Several blinded studies show no such effects when MSG is combined with food in normal concentrations and are inconclusive when MSG is added to broth in large concentrations. And I've got a story to disprove doesn't do anything to you. <laughs> so, so do I. So do I. In the 80s, before I was old enough to really care too much about what I was putting into my body when I should have been, I had a guy that I worked with and I had a friend that both had to be very careful not to eat MSG, which I had never heard of before I knew these people, for this very reason. They would get terrible headaches and occasionally feel like they were going to throw up. So in the late 1990s and into the uh, early 2000s, I worked at a restaurant called TGI Fridays, and I'd work night shift, so I'd always have dinner there. Well, like clockwork, and it wasn't just me, there'd be quite a few of us uh, on the staff After we would order whatever we were going to have for dinner that night, 30 minutes later or so, we'd all be taking turns going to the bathroom. And I now know, uh, after looking it up, that TGI Fridays is one of the worst for the amount of MSG that they put in their food. I don't know if that's still true. haven't been to one in ages. But at the time, they apparently were at the top of the list of putting MSG in their food. And I'm pretty sure Olive Garden, which is where I went next to work for a few years before I moved— Ah, uh, they do the same damn thing. You know, there's one line in what you just covered that gets you thinking too, because I've spent time in Japan and I actually cook miso soups and things where I use kombu kelp. Uh, that's one of the most healthy things you can imagine. Many of the things they pull out of the sea, particularly the seaweed things, there's a certain kind of seaweed. I think I became aware of it when I was in Okinawa. It's very bright green and fluffy, grassy looking, and you can never get it because it's thought to extend life it's always instantly sold out. But my point is in this bullet point, you say there's some Japanese biochemist trying to figure out how to replace kombu kelp. And the reason this hits my ear funny is because of the diet in Japan that I was aware of, I would imagine as a whole, they would be much more healthy. They would be living longer, which like in Okinawa is true. uh, One of the longest lived places in the world. But the point is how in the heck is their population in such dire straits? with this good food supply. I wonder what it was that got introduced that affected their birth rate. Had to be something, um, but on the face of it, their food seems to be much more healthier than much more healthy than ours. And yet their birth rate is in critical mass. I think that's more of a social thing than the food supply, if I had to take a guess. I don't know. I've thought about it. Like, did they put something in a, you know, did they purposely do this? And I think, well, why would, you know, why would the Japanese government, but then, you know, talking to some of the people I know now, I've been told that the two main goals of everything that's going on in the world right now is to get rid of white people and get rid of critical thinkers. (laughs) When I first heard that, I'm all really. And then I started thinking about it. I wonder if it's true. As a result of the aftermath of World War I and the following economic depression that affected so much of the world in the early 20th century, there was severe malnourishment occurring, especially in Europe. So this led to the mass production of processed foods throughout the world. There's an irony in this, Jason, because I have recently heard nutritionists claim that people who are obese or drastically overweight are actually malnourished and that they continually eat because they're not getting the nourishment their body wants. I don't know how accurate that is, but there's a bit I've of irony there. Similar. Yeah, that, that's quite ironic if it's on point. Before the 1920s, 
most housewives were primarily preparing foods from scratch. By the 1920s, however, ready-to-cook foods were becoming more available. The post-World War I world saw canning become quite common, as well as the concept of frozen foods being seen more and more. Western marketing was on the move, and of course, Edward Bernays had a lot to do with this beginning at this time, and processed food ads made promises to save housewives time and effort with their meal preparations. Appliances such as gas stoves, electric refrigerators, and other useful kitchen tools were showing up in homes more and more, so more varieties of food could be purchased and stored. Different condiments also appeared, which opened taste buds to new flavors, thanks to the variety of immigrants who were introducing them. Processed foods from the 1920s would include Baby Ruth candy bars, Kool-Aid, Peter Pan peanut butter, Popsicles, Reese's peanut butter cups, Van Camp's canned pork and beans, Velveeta cheese, Welch's grape jelly, Wheaties, Wonder Bread, and Yoo-Hoo chocolate-y kind of sort of beverage. It makes me wonder, of all the people listening, I can see one thing that I know was probably never in my house. That was the Yoo-Hoo. Of course, I, I never did drink milk, but um, every other one of these processed food items from the 20s was in my house when I was young at one time or another. I wonder how many listening would say the same thing, Jason. The point I'm making is talk about removing diversity, right? Uh, you would think, okay, there's a million households. There's a million possibilities of what might be on the table. But when you start to think about what you just said, this is removing diversity, isn't it? And if it's an unhealthy removal of diversity, then it's affecting a hell of a lot more people. Well, let's be real. Out of those things I just read off that short list, come on, everybody's heard of all those things, right? Everyone's had all these things, I would imagine, ingested all these things. Right. And maybe a lot of these things are still, a hundred odd years later, mainstays in your pantry. That just shows you the power of the social engineering that went into marketing these things to make them be a lasting product. Because they are products. I have trouble looking at these at all as pure food. They've been changed in some way to be what they are because uh, everything comes down to shelf life with a lot of this stuff. And uh, it's just as true as today. So I have two big grapevines in my backyard. One is a Concord grape, which you would get something like Welch's grape jelly if you were still doing it from grapes. I have no idea how they're doing it. Maybe it's grape flavor. And the other one is like a Zinfandel. It's a white grape. So a couple years ago, well, actually like 15 years ago, my mother and my sister went out and they collected a whole bunch and they made grape jelly. And it was good. I remember it, but we forgot about it. So a couple of years ago, I went out and did it again and it was fantastic. And the, what I remember thinking is you can use a better sweetener, a better quality sugar, and you can use less of it. And it really was every bit as good, if not better than the Welch's that you're used to. But here's the thing. After mom died and we're cleaning out the house, my sister found two jars of the grape jelly they made like 15 years ago. We opened it up and it was good as the day they canned it. Now, I strongly suspect that the uh, jelly is a great example, that as time went on, I didn't actually look this up to prove it, but I'm pretty sure I'm right, that the amount of sugar content as well as God knows what else increased over time. 
Well, plus the sugar content, it did increase over time, but it got worse because the quality of the sugar got worse. The GMO issue is going to come into it, but then the whole corn syrup idea. In other words, I could just go get a scoop of white processed sugar, which is bad enough, but people really have a real problem with the corn syrup, which is really processed out in some way. I'm sure there's nutritionists listening that can make comments on this. Um, But from what I understand, it's not just the volume that's gone up, but the quality of the sweetener has gone down in terms of health concerns, high fructose corn syrup. That's it. We're going to get to that. So that's going to bring us to the end of hour one. And we just started with doing a breakdown by decades. Now, there are a lot of things that um, you're going to see ramping up decade after decade to the point that uh, by the time you get to the middle of the 20th century, you're really at a point where, good God, everything is just night and day different from what it was just a few years earlier. I can't even do the bulk of my shopping. As a matter of fact, I do almost none of my shopping do I do in like a big Ralph's or stop and shop or whatever the big market chain in your area would be. And that is directly related to years ago going through and reading every label of the things I normally bought and beginning to realize truly you are what you eat. And what I noticed is if I would have kept eating as I did in my 30s, Um, I probably would have been in a terrible spot right by now, but it makes me wonder in the so-called truther community, what is the main difference of those who kind of catch on that something's not right here and those that don't. And I always consider is what's in the water and what in the food, what's in the food contributing. In other words, the people who are not catching on could part of that issue or failure to catch on to a thing so obvious be what they're eating. Anyhow, anything else you want to add before I wrap up and we prep for hour two? So this is maybe a little different than the way we normally do things here. But when I thought of doing this, I wanted to really point out, we do a lot of stuff here decade by decade because it shows how the social engineering occurred across pretty much everything in our society. It's not just one thing. It's not just the music or it's not just this or it's not just that. They were getting us in so many ways. And it's not that every single person who invented a processed food product was necessarily a malicious son of a bitch, but the stuff gets out there and then used against us. And here we are at a time, again, to use the McDonald's example, where you're basically eating a pile of chemicals with barely a little bit of food mixed in to make it palatable. It's just insane where we're at today. Calories with flavor. You know, if you want, if you want to be honest about it, but yeah, it's, it's crazy how far we've fallen. And the truth of it, from my point of view is the same underlying problem that's causing so much misery in our world is the underlying problem with what we're talking about. And that magical, nasty word is corporation, the talking dead, the corpse oration, they are wholly concerned in whatever they're wholly concerned with. And at no time. Does the customer come into the picture openly at this point? Didn't used to be so openly admitted that they were going to do what they're going to do. Right now, you can see corporation at the car industry level plotting the entire future of the world because they ain't making gas cars anymore. The average person might say, that's fantastic, less pollution. Well, there are many ways we could power things. What electric is going to do, it's going to limit your world. Right now, the average person who could afford average car made by a corporation that is electric can get 150 miles-ish away from your house. 
If you want to make it home, you've got to go home. It'll take you most of the night, if not part of the next day to charge it back up. That is getting better. But the point I would make is when I was young, when you got a car, you could drive from California to New York if you wanted. And I know this because I did it. What's happening in the food supply, this has been fueled by corporations. What are the names on all the foods we grew up with? Kraft, that's a corporation. Um, And so the same underlying concerns and issues that are driving this world, which feels pretty dark at times right now, are the same underlying concerns that we're talking about with the food supply. Anyhow, that's hour one of episode 455. Jason and I are going to get together and prep for hour two. And you can catch hour two at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members get the full two or two hour plus episode and they get free access to the movie Shoot the Moon, which has won 10 awards now, last two from India. There it is. I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era, and I hope to see you on the other side for the hour two. There it is, man. Cheers.
enemies of knowing. Come.